to be on fire, and our country seems to be doing everything it can to destabilize itself with um, the current political process and, and the people who are vying for power. Um, the worst kind of people are seizing power, and it's not just here, it's, it's all over the world. And the only place that we are going to find safety is where Psalm 64, where David describes it in Psalm 64, and then we are looking for what David describes in Psalm 65. So I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 64, and we will start in Psalm 64 and then move into Psalm 65. And it's remarkable what we see here. It's really a lot like what we just sang with Psalm 46. You may remember that when we were back in Psalm 46, there was this, this sort of sequence that in, in Psalms 42 through 44, the people of God were, were suffering and they were downcast. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And then in Psalm 45, the king comes. And then as we just sang in Psalm 46, there's this sort of end time undoing of the world followed by Psalm 47, the celebration of the new city. There's a similar movement here from Psalm 64 to 65, where in 64, David is going to take a hard look at his enemies and contemplate them, and then talk about their outcome, and then he's going to go into Psalm 65, which sounds like a description of God's blessing on the land, which is going to be realized in the new heavens and new earth. So look with me at Psalm 64, 1 through 4, and here... In these first four verses of Psalm 64, David is, is praying for the Lord to deliver him from those who weaponize their tongues. These are people who are making their tongues into weapons. So he says here in Psalm 65, 64 verse 1, Hear my voice, O God. And, and this, this should sound familiar to you. Look back at 61.1. Hear my cry, O God. It's remarkable how often in the Psalms, David is crying out to the Lord simply to be heard. And, and I think there's, a, there's something for us here in this. That what we see in David is a desire for God to hear him. And then this is going to be, this is going to be realized. Look, look at 65.5 while we're thinking about David saying, uh, hear my voice. Look at 65.5. By awesome deeds, you answer us. So David is crying out to be heard, and then in the next psalm, he's going to say, you answer. The God of the Bible is a God who hears prayer. David says, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. So we've talked about this as we've been in the Psalms. We've, we've talked about the various enemies that David confronted during his life. Uh, early, before he was enthroned, Saul was out there trying to kill him. And then after he was enthroned, his own son Absalom rebelled against him. And in both, in both circumstances, David found himself in a situation that is similar to what the people of God across the ages have found themselves in. Namely, we're outnumbered. We're outmanned, we're, we're, we're small, we, we seem insignificant, we seem like there's no way we're going to prevail. That's where David is. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. 
If, you know, if you're a Christian in the United States of America, I think you can validly pray, pray this prayer because we have enemies. We have people who are looking to take away our ability to worship the Lord freely, our ability to live out our faith in accordance with uh, the dictates of our conscience as we understand the Bible to, to call us to behave. People want to, to curtail our, our ability to do those things. And we should pray like this. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. David, clearly, fearing that Saul or Absalom or some other enemy is going to, to kill him, and he's calling on the Lord for preservation. Verse 2 should also sound familiar if you've been with us as we've gone through the Psalms. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. This should recall Psalm 2, 1 through 3. We're right back there where there's this meditation on the fact that the nations are raging and the kings of the earth are gathering together and taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and the, the, the way the Bible presents things, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. The way that the Bible presents things, there is the kingdom of God headed by the Lord Jesus. And then there is the world and the devil and, and the prince of the power of the air. And, and if you're not in the one, you're in the other. And what David is saying here is, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evil doers. David has a very clear understanding that those who are not supporting him in seeing him established on the throne of God's kingdom as the king of God's kingdom, they are with the evil one in opposition, not just to him personally, but also to the God of the Bible. And then here's where they, they weaponize their, their tongues. Look at verse 3. Who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Now, this is a metaphorical description of what they say, right? They're, they're wetting their tongues like swords. This means that they are they're practicing the way that they say things. They are honing their message. And the whole thing is designed to bring David down, to oppose God's kingdom. And then I think this description of them aiming their words like arrows and shooting at the blameless one. The blameless one is David who has not committed treason. He's not guilty. There's nothing for which he's to be condemned. He's authorized by God to be king. And they're going after the blameless one, shooting at him suddenly, meaning they're speaking against him. And they're doing this without fear, and specifically without fear of God. As I, as I read this this week, particularly verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. I couldn't help but think of, of this um, biography of Mao Zedong that I've, I've just started reading. And um, it, it's interesting to learn that Mao Zedong, the leader of the, uh, the, the, the communist overthrow of the government in China, he was no committed ideologue. He was basically someone who was entirely and completely self-centered and mainly concerned with, with accumulating power and control to himself, and he manipulated the Russians. And, and he, he basically double-crossed the Russians and just used communism as a way to, to get himself installed as king. But the reason I, I thought of him is because 
uh, the biographer notes that everywhere Mao lived, he was paranoia. Uh, he, he was paranoid and and obsessively concerned with his own safety. So every one of his houses had some kind of escape route. Almost every room of every one of his houses had a secret exit that that maybe only he and his security detail knew about because he was so paranoid. And when you you read of all the atrocities that this man committed and all of the people that this man double-crossed and all of the people that he abused and murdered and all of the horrors that he committed, you would understand why he would think, I got lots of enemies who are, who are out to get me. And he's seeking safety in his, in his armed guards and his, in his secret escape routes. And I would say to you, that is no place to find safety. If you want to live in fear, if you want to live in paranoia, if you want to live in constant agitation about how you're going to get away, you can pursue that route. Or you can do what David does here in Psalm 64. You can live in an upright way, and you can entrust your safety to the Lord. That's what we see David doing. In verses 5 and 6, he looks at the deep evil and injustice of the opposition. Look at verse 5. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? Who who is aware of what we're doing? They search out injustice, saying, We have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and heart of man are deep. What David is describing here is entrenched opposition. Opposition that is not interested in the facts. Opposition that is not interested in changing sides, in being reconciled to David. He's talking about unsearchable evil in the human heart. Look at, look at the end of verse 6 there. The inward mind and heart of a man are deep. And then look again at verse 5. They hold fast to their evil purpose. I've also been reading lately on the history of uh, uh, scholarship on the Bible. And what is striking to me is the way that these, these biblical scholars who, who uh, pioneered these liberal conclusions about the Bible and, and really advocated these uh, unbelieving approaches to studying the Bible, these guys were not interested in conservative answers to the problems that they raised. They didn't want the truth. What they wanted was to accomplish their agenda. That's what they wanted. And they pursued their agenda. And they did so for the very simple reason that if the Bible is the word of God, it is authoritative. But if you can undermine the authority of the Bible, well, then you can free yourself, at least theoretically, from your perception of its authority. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They don't care what the conservatives say. They don't care what the evidence actually indicates. They hold fast to their evil purpose. Purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. This is the kind of opposition that David is facing. So these are the people who are wetting their tongues like swords and aiming their bitter words like arrows back in verse 3. And look what happens to them in verses 7 and 8. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, 
These two verses should put you on notice. If you're here this morning and you are setting yourself, you're an unbeliever, you're resisting the Holy Spirit, you're refusing the Lordship of Jesus, you're trying to hold off yourself the claims of the Bible and, and your obligations to your Creator, verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 64, this is your fair warning that you're getting, okay? So when you stand before God someday, and you will have no claim of, well, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Look, look what's going to happen to the wicked in verse 7. God shoots his arrow at them. You notice the, the language from verse 3? What they are planning to do to the righteous, God causes to rebound on them. You could translate this in the past tense. In fact, I think maybe that would be a better translation. God shot them with an arrow suddenly capturing the way that it's as good as done. The wicked, they will not escape their own conscience, much less the Almighty God. What they're planning to do to the righteous, they're, they're planning to shoot their arrows. God shot his arrow at them. And then, it, the ESV renders this, they are wounded suddenly. You could, you could translate it, they became their wounds. Nothing is left of these enemies of God except one large wound or, or maybe a, a, a body that is just pervaded with wounds. You owe everything to God. You owe your existence and your ongoing life to God. If you refuse your obligations to him, he has every right to punish you. And he will, because he's righteous. He's just. Verse 8, they are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. The, the, there's the irony. The, the, what the wicked plot to do to others, it winds up coming back on them because evil is intrinsically self-defeating. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. It's like people see the downfall of the wicked and their heads go back and forth. And, and, and there's this, they had it coming to them. What did they expect? Evil will be suddenly, comprehensively defeated. And then there's a response to it in verses 9 and 10. A response of fear and exaltation. Look at verse, verse 9. Then all mankind fears. What are they fearing? They're fearing God. They're fearing God because seemingly powerful opponents, seemingly significant opposition to God and his purpose has been smashed. All mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about. This is, it's, it's such a complete and, and total devastation that everybody is talking about it. They can't stop telling what God has done. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Everybody's thinking about, look at what God did in the downfall of the wicked. And then verse 10 is very similar to Psalm 63, verse 11. So before we read Psalm 64, verse 10, let me invite you to look back at 63, 11. 
where it says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So same message, really, right? The opponents of David are going to be defeated. And then, it's interesting, who's David talking about in 6311? Is David talking about himself? Or could David be talking about the king that God promised to raise up from his line? Remember that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7? I will raise up your descendant after you and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I think maybe that guy is in view. That would be the Lord Jesus. The king will rejoice in God, all who swear by him. So there's the singular king, and then there's everybody that's aligned with King Jesus that exults in the triumph of God in 6311. Now look at 6410. Let the righteous one. There's a sense in which I think this is David, the blameless one, the righteous one. But ultimately, this is going to be the king, the individual, Jesus. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. The one rejoices. And then, so let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. And then look at the the group aligned with him at the end of 6410. Let all the upright in heart exult. So the individual rejoices, and then everybody aligned with that individual exults. Same, same subjects, same verbs from uh, 6311 into 6410. And I think what it tells us is that the righteous one is the future king, and that everybody that aligns themselves with that future king, they are the upright in heart. What makes them upright in heart? I, I, I want to try to be as clear as I possibly can here because, because I want to do everything I can to, 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 to help uh, us as Christians uh, not pro- project some kind of hypocrisy, okay? So what makes us upright in heart is not that we have never sinned. What makes us upright in heart is not that we don't have evil inclinations that we wish were not in our hearts, What makes us upright in heart is not that we've got all our stuff together. What makes us upright in heart is that we see all that stuff in our lives and we hate it and we know it's wrong. We don't respond to it by saying, well, I feel this way, so it must be right. So what I'm going to do is reject the Bible. No, we say, I feel this way and I know it's wrong and I don't want it there because I want to be right with God. So I want to turn away from that stuff, but I know ultimately that I need some help. And we're going to get insight into the help that we're going to get uh, in Psalm 65. But just to cut to the chase here, what we do is we turn away from our sin and we trust in God and we look to Jesus who is our Savior. That's what we do. So before we go forward into Psalm um, Psalm 65, uh, let's let's pause and let's take stock of what what we see here. The upright in heart, first, the upright in heart are upright in heart because they turn away from sin and they accept the norms of the Bible and they trust God. That's what makes them upright in heart. We'll see more about what makes them upright in heart in Psalm 65. So if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, that's what we're inviting you to. We're inviting you to flee the wrath of God that is described here in Psalm 64 by turning from all unrighteousness and trusting in the Lord. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, let me give you three applications from Psalm 64. And, and um, this is manifestly influenced by the fact that we're in an election cycle. 
Uh, the, the Republican National Committee is about to hold their big convention, and they're about to nominate a candidate for president. So here's your first application. Number one, put all your political hope in King Jesus. Resolutely, persistently, daily. He's the king. He is the one who's going to make the world new. The world is not going to be made new if the Republicans nominate somebody who's a man of honor and who's a conservative. That is not going to remake the world. It's not going to wipe away every tear. It's not going to uh, alleviate. It's not, it's not going to fix the world's problem. You need to put all your political hopes resolutely in Jesus. He's the one who's going to bring about racial, racial reconciliation. He's the one who's going to bring about the alleviation of poverty. He's the one who's going to fix things. So we need to be people who, when we talk about, the, and I'm not saying don't talk about the political process. I'm not saying don't care about it. I'm not saying disengage from it. I'm not saying any of that. But we need to be people who, anytime we talk about it, we're communicating this idea that, hey, this, you know, this is not my kingdom. And these candidates are not my kings. My king's going to make things right, and he really is going to come. And that's where my hopes really are. Second, and this comes out of, this comes out of verses 5 and 6. Harbor no illusions about what is in the hearts of those who don't seek God's kingdom. Harbor no illusions about what is in the hearts of those who do not seek God's kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying there? I'm saying that you're either seeking God's kingdom or you're seeking the kingdom of the world, which, whether you know it or not, ultimately is the kingdom of Satan. And if you're not seeking God's kingdom, your heart is deep, and your inward mind is unsearchable, and if we were really to go through there, what we would find is verse 5, holding fast to evil purpose and talking of laying snares and all kinds of evil and wickedness and injustice. That's what's really there. And if we're believers, we need to have no illusions about what's driving people that are not seeking the kingdom of God. We, do not, we must not be naive. Thirdly, we must entrust ourselves completely to the Lord. There's, there's really not that much between us and what's going on in Turkey, you know, where the military, some military commander decides, I think I'll seize power because I don't trust the government anymore. I mean, the, as, as, as injustice and as lawlessness increases, more important people are going to conclude, what do the laws matter? Why should we obey the laws? Those people don't obey the laws, and they're not punished. I might as well seize power and see if we can't enforce some justice here. We're, we're, I, we're, there's not that much between us and them. Our trust cannot be in the social order, in... Uh, the, the rule of law, I mean, you know, do we even have that anymore? Our trust must be in the Lord. Psalm 65. We go from, I, I think there's a natural movement from verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 64 where God defeats the enemies into Psalm 65. So, so think about the movement of thought. 64.1, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Why is he complaining? Because of these wicked people. Look at what God does to them in 7 and 8. God shoots them. And now 65, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. David starts off with praise for God. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. 
So David is saying, Lord, we're going to respond to your justice with praise, and we're going to make vows to worship you. And then, and then he calls God, verse 2, O you who hear prayer. This is such a comforting reality about the Bible's teaching. There it is. The Bible says God hears prayer. If you believe that God is almighty, if you believe that he's a loving father, if you believe that he hears prayer, there is no reason not to call on him. We should be a people of prayer. We should be people who are constantly making recourse to this reality. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. All peoples are going to be drawn to God. And then look at verse 3. I was promising you this about, about how uh, those who are aligned with the king get to be upright in heart. Look at Psalm 65, verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me. I think what David is saying here is there are, there are sins that get the better of me. They prevail against me. There, there, are, there are sins that he would like to stop committing, and he can't. And then, and then once that reality has happened, how's he going to deal with that sin? How's he going to fix the, the, the chasm that this creates between him and God? The debt that this puts on him that he owes to God's justice and righteousness. Look at what he says there in verse 3. You atone for our transgressions. You atone. So we Christians, we've not fixed ourselves. We have not accomplished atonement for ourselves. So, so if you're here and you're not a believer, please don't think that we are self-righteous people. We're not. We don't think that we have hearts that are pure. We know we don't. And we don't think that we have somehow accomplished right standing with God. We haven't. We are people who say, iniquities have prevailed against me, and God made atonement for my transgressions. God did that. I didn't somehow climb up a ladder that that established the status of righteousness for me. God covered my sin with the blood of Christ. That's how we got to be people who are upright in heart back in 64 verse 10. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. And then verse 4 of Psalm 65 is once again talking about this individual. And I think this individual is the king. I think David is talking about the king promised to him, the king that the Lord said he would raise up from his line. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Remember those statements in Psalm 15 and 24? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who who is this person? And now there's this chosen one that, that is brought near to God who has the right to dwell in God's courts. And what we believe about Jesus is that he was a man of, of clean hands and a pure heart. He earned his place in God's presence by means of his perfectly righteous life. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. And then here again, there's this movement from the singular, the individual, to the group. We saw that in 63.11, 64.10, and now we see it here again in 65.4. Blessed is the one, and then look at the middle of the verse. We shall be satisfied. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. 
So it's like because of the chosen one, because of the one that God has brought near to himself, because of the king from David's line, this group of people that, that swear by him, that are upright in heart because of what he has done for them, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Last night, my son Jed's team, they won the uh, state championship, which now means that we're going on to the regional tournament, which is down in Lake Cumberland, Kentucky. We're really excited about this trip, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing to think about trying to live with seven people. In I don't want to live with seven people in a hotel from Wednesday to Sunday. I don't want to do that. So we're trying to find some way to accommodate all of us rather than having to get two hotel rooms and, and you know eat every meal out because, because a home is a really satisfying place, right? There's a refrigerator, there's a stove, there's laundry, there's all these amenities that make it possible for you to have a normal life. Well, think about the goodness of God's house. Think about the comforts and the amenities and the delights that God is going... I mean, God created you. God knows what you need. He knows what will satisfy you. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. And it's not going to be like roughing it, you know? It's not going to be in, in some difficult place to, to maintain a, a, a lifestyle that you'd like to be able to sleep at night. It, it's it's going to be satisfying. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So, so praise for God in verses 1 through 4. And now verses 5 through 8, this God who answers prayer. Verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Now, I think in context, I think these two psalms are related to one another. And in context, David has been crying out for God to hear him. And then he's described the way that God smashed the evil in, in verses 7 and 8 of 64, and now in 65.5, he's describing God's defeat of injustice and wickedness as awesome deeds. By awesome deeds, you answer our prayers with righteousness. Everything God does is flawless, blameless. There, there can be no complaint about his fairness He is going to act in righteousness. And everybody's going to know, I've got no case to make against him. I've got no standing to take him into court. He's in the right, absolutely and completely. And David is celebrating this. By awesome deeds, you answer us. You heard our prayers. You went into action on our behalf. You answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. What David is affirming here is that there is only one living and true God. What David is saying, you know, sometimes people will say things like, well, if the biblical authors knew how many peoples there were on the earth, they wouldn't have made these exclusive claims. If they had been aware of all the varieties of the religions. No, that's not not what we see here. David is saying, you, God, are our salvation And you're the hope of all the ends of the earth. You're the only hope there is for anybody, everywhere. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And then, I think, in 
in explicit repudiation of competing religious claims in his, in his world, David is going to start talking about the God of the Bible. And, and what I mean is, you know, for, for, for the Greeks and the Romans and for the ancient Phoenicians and other peoples of the ancient Near East, they had these local deities. You'd have this God that was over the mountains, and you'd have this other God who's over the seas, and then you'd have this other God who's over the underworld. You'd have all these different deities and powers in these different places. And look at what David says here. The one who by his strength established the mountains, those massive walls of rocks with their granite roots that reach deep into the earth, those were put there by the God of the Bible. And he did it by his strength, being girded with might. So the Lord is depicted here as, as a man who in these flowing robes of ancient Near Eastern culture, he, he girds up his robes, and what he uses to gird up his robes is might. And then he goes about establishing the mountains. It's a, it's a vivid portrayal of the Lord at work in creation. And then look at verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas. There's not some sea god Yom out there in the waters controlling what happens out there. That's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, stilling the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. And you know, we see somebody do that in the New Testament too, don't we? The one who says to the waters, peace, be still. And the people in the boat say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. The God of the Bible is the authority over all lands, all waters, and all peoples. Everyone has obligations to him. And then it goes on, verse 8, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. People the world over are astonished at creation. All people everywhere are in awe of God's work. They may have different explanations for it, but they're in awe of what God has done. And David is rightly attributing uh, authority and power and, and original work to the one who authored all of it. And then David says here at the end of verse 8, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So if you've watched a sunrise or a sunset lately, you should think in terms of those blazing colors in the clouds, that orange and purple and blue and, 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 and then the growing deep darkness. You should think in terms of creation, creation shouting for joy to God. That's what's happening. And then in this final section... Verses 9 through 13, David speaks of the way that the Lord blesses the land. This is, this is really one of the most beautiful poetic sections, I think, of all the Bible. Because what David is getting at here, think, think about the movement of thought, thought in this psalm, or in these two psalms. We've, we've seen David in danger. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord overcomes evil and wickedness. And then there's this praise, and now it's like this renewal of the land. Why did the land need to be renewed? Because, he, because God cursed it. Why did God curse the land? Because of sin. What has God done? God has atoned for transgressions in 65.3. 
So I think what we're getting here is like an anticipation of the new heavens and new earth, the renewal of creation so that it's once again like the Garden of Eden. Verse 9, you visit the earth. What David is communicating here is that where God is present is where there will be life and blessing and flourishing. And that's also what's communicated from from the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Eden is where God was going to dwell with his people. To be expelled from the realm of life is to enter the unclean realm of the dead. And then then that's where we all live. But David is now describing the Lord visiting the earth, and he's going to water it, and he says, you greatly enrich it. He's causing creation to abound and flourish. And then he goes on to describe the way that there is no lack of water in the realm where God is present. He says, the river of God is full of water. We sang about that river, didn't we? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. The river of God is full of water. His resources will never run dry. David says, you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. So the Lord visits, and, and all, all that is touched by his presence begins to flourish, springs to life, experiences the limitless fountain of his goodness and the life that flows from him. And that doesn't exclude human endeavor. Look at verse 10. You water its furrows, abundantly, settling its ridges. These furrows are, are these grooves in the land cut by plows. So this is the work that people do. And so you can imagine a farmer taking a plow, pulled by an ox in this world probably, and, it, and it's, he's, he's, he's taking this plow through the land and it's cutting this gash in the earth. And what David is describing is the rain falling on those, those clods of dirt and those, those rough places And what's happening is that the ridges are settled so that the soil regroups around the seed that the farmer put into those furrows. And and the Lord softens the earth with showers and blesses its growth. So human endeavor is blessed where God is present. And then he goes on in verse 11 And he personifies the year. So, you know, in in David's world, you would have uh, the planting season and then the harvest season. And what David does is he takes this year, this period of time, and he says, all right, year, you're going to stand up and be like a person for me, and I'm going to speak of you in human terms. And what the Lord does for you, year person, is he takes this crown that is his own bounty, and he places it on your head. So he says here, verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty. What's he saying? He's saying the harvest is abundant. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is lush and thick and everything you would hope it to be because God visited the land. You crown the year with your bounty. And then then he changes the metaphor. And now it's like the Lord... Is, is maybe the harvester or something, and he's been driving this wagon back and forth between the pasture and, and the barn where all the goodness is, is stored. And he's gone over the tracks so many times that now you've got wagon tracks in this path that the Lord has cut from, from the place of his harvest to the place of storage. 
And he says, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. It's like all this stuff is falling off the cart because it's so loaded down. And everything is, 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 is verdant and full and blooming and glorious. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Verse 12, the pastures of the wilderness overflow. And then he personifies the hills. The hills Gird themselves with joy. So hills now are like people that have these robes on and they gird up their robes and what they gird themselves with is joy. What's he saying? Again, he's saying everything is flourishing. Everything is blessed because of God's presence because God has defeated evil. God has atoned for transgression and now God is visiting his goodness and blessing in all the world. He moves from the hills to the meadows. Verse 13, the meadows... The meadows now are a person who's putting on clothes, and the clothes that the meadows are putting on are these flocks that are, that are growing abundantly out because there's so much pasture. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. So, I mean, my daughter this morning, she had this little bow in her hair. She decked herself with this little bow. The valleys are decking themselves with grain. And then creation, the pastures, the year, the meadows, the valleys... Verse 13, they shout and sing together for joy. There is this rejoicing of the created order because of God's presence and God's goodness and God's removal of the curse. Now, what David is doing by describing creation this way is I would suggest there are two things that should be at work in us in response to this. One, we should be hoping hoping for the time when God will make all things new. Two, when we see the tangible evidence of God's love in the goodness of the world in which we live, the fact that the oxygen cooperates with our lungs, the fact that God makes, as, as Indy Wilson says, God uses this sunlight and air factory to make apples, the fact that God causes creation to work for us this way, we should perceive this and experience this as tangible expressions of God's loving kindness for us. How do we respond to this psalm? Let me, let me suggest three things for you. This does not exhaust, exhaust the possible applications, but these are three of them for us. Number one, look at verse one. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Praise God. You should praise Him all the time. Experience His goodness and praise Him. Number two, look at verse two. O you who hear prayer, verse five, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Hear the testimony, listen to the testimony that God answers prayer and believe it. If you believe it, you, you won't be able to help yourself. You'll pray. So hear the testimony from the psalmist that God answers prayer and believe it. And then thirdly, look at God's kindness and love in what he has made and in how he tends it and nourishes it. So here's your authorization to enjoy creation. Here's your permission, if you needed it. If, you know, if... Christianity, some people have this mistaken notion that Christianity is this ascetic, world-hating thing. No. Christianity is a, is a religion that authorizes 
a love for God's creation. You should look at it, be in awe of it, and praise the one who created it and the one who maintains it and the one who visits it and the one who's going to remake it new in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words and these ideas. Words that are strung together more beautifully than we ever could have imagined. Ideas that answer the longing of our souls, that meet the needs of our hearts, that rebuke our pride and wickedness, and that woo us to align ourselves, to swear by the King who is coming. Lord, I pray that you would so work, even this morning, that, that people would do that, that people would turn away from their allegiance to Satan and his kingdom and swear by the coming king and find that you have given them an upright heart that loves to give you praise. And Lord, I pray that you would make this irresistible for them. I pray that you would make it such an obvious choice, such a, a clear um, option that no one would ever want to refuse. Lord, I pray that they would, they would find this to be a no-brainer and that they would do it, that they would turn to Jesus and turn away from all that is ruining them and rejoice in you. And Father, for those of us who rejoice at your mercy, we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that sing your praise in a way that's worthy of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.